Welcome. This is an Exponential Intelligence Podcast. Uh, lovely guest here today, Teal Swan. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, abuse and the road to recovery, and then also uh, your latest book that comes out that can help a lot of people. So for those of us uh, who don't know you as well, a lot of uh, a lot of my listeners might not know you, you want to give a little background uh, on, say, where you're coming from, you know, some of the high points on why you're doing what you're doing. Okay. I think that story basically starts at the beginning of life. I came into this life with my filters for the third dimension blown. So it's like a disability. Mm-hmm. And the disability made it so that I'm not only seeing the third dimensional reality, I'm also seeing other dimensions. And most people would be like, oh, that's a cool gift. And it can be in some ways, but you know, it's, it's almost like listening to 40 channels on a radio at once. Yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. So being born like that into the type of family that I had, which was a scientifically oriented family, was the real challenge, you know, because they didn't see this in terms of, oh my gosh, this is an amazing gift. They saw it in terms of something seriously wrong with their daughter. Right, right. So they not knowing what to do and being in an incredibly conservative religious community, my parents weren't part of it. They were ironically not, but I had no resources. And unfortunately, there was a man in the community who came forward saying that he had those resources for me. And, you know, when you're a parent and your kid is suffering and you don't relate to them at all, and it's really, you know, a problem for you, and somebody comes forward and says, I do have the answers for this child, the inclination is to be like, okay, I'm glad somebody does. And so my parents trusted me to this man as a mentor. And behind their back, basically, I was getting ritualistically tortured and on a sexual level, mental level, emotional level for the period of 13 years. So I was a complete shell of a human being. Mm -hmm. It was the worst kind of abuse that you can endure. Uh, The kind of stuff that I went through, it it was highly sophisticated. It's not like, you know, just basic molestation type of stuff. So when I got away from that, I was literally a shell of a human. I had absolutely no social skills, I guess you could say. I didn't have anything that I wanted to do. I had no direction in life. And all I had was just all these coping mechanisms to try to deal with severe abuse, all of which got me in trouble in society. So I was at a point where it was like, I got to piece myself back together again. And I wanted nothing to do with spiritual stuff. So I went into professional athletics. And there comes a point where you can only succeed in professional athletics when you start to face the things that you're running away from. That becomes your barrier to, to getting further. So I turned back in the direction of my abilities and I also had a son and my son was born also with stuff going on here on the the spiritual field. After I got over a sort of crisis of thinking he's going to suffer just like I suffered, I realized that my only option of trying to get him to live in alignment with it instead of resisting it his whole life was for me to embrace it. So I started seeing people one-on-one again. So it's not like I came to this later in life. It's like I went back to what I was originally trained for. And um, People do that. They try to move away from their abilities, uh, yep. but then it's ingrained in you. It's like trying to move away from your arms. You know, you can't walk yeah. away from something that's innate <laughs> in you, right? So yeah. to learn how to use them, I think that's a great gift to have. Um, you know, and, you know, Teal, you're... you're your abuse people would go well that's really extreme it doesn't happen often but mm. sensing that it happens pretty often but it's really hidden i don't know would you oh, yeah. agree with me on that well in my well i'll just give you an example in my childhood 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, kind of stuff that I was going through with ritualistic abuse, which involved mind control and oh. sexual slavery and all that kind of stuff. There would be ritual holidays where I would be walked into a room full of 100 girls, little girls, age eight. And so there is no way, there is no way, you know, yeah. that this isn't rampant. And, and I got to see firsthand, actually, why this is so undercover, because when I got out, part of going through ritual trauma therapy is that after two years of therapy, they allow you into a group, mm-hmm. a group of the same kind of, you know, women who've been through the same thing. And it's such a relief because you get in there and you've got like a group of anywhere between eight and like 10 other women who have all been through the same thing. But the second that I went public, meaning made the decision to say, you know what world, this is what happened. I don't want it to happen again. I'm going to start talking about it. I never heard from one of them again. They vanished. Wow. That is so crazy. Um, and I think this is, you're not just getting into say normal abuses is like, um, almost like a cult, obviously a, it is a cult abuse, but there's that consciousness that goes into the political systems, the yes. Hollywood groups and all oh, yes. things. So you're, you know, you're fighting a strong force. I really commend you for what you're doing because it takes a lot of strength uh, and it'll help a lot of people, uh, you know, come into their own life. So, um, can you explain, um, or elaborate on the fragments that, you know, that I know you've pulled yourself together, you know, mm-hmm. quite a bit, but are there still fragments in you that still aren't say complete? Well, this is the way that I look at it. Because I have the kind of consciousness that recognizes the mirroring that's inherently happening in this universe, if there is fragmentation in the external world, there must still be fragmentation internally. Yes. So I'm never going to look at you probably in the face and say that I'm completely integrated. I think it's pretty scary to do that, just like it's dangerous to say you completely know yourself. Yeah, who who can? Anyway. It's always a layer upon layer upon layer. Oh, yes. What I can say is the better it gets, the better it gets. True. So let's look at fragmentation. Um, in childhood, when we experience these traumas, what my definition of trauma, by the way, is distress without resolution. So when you get into a distressing situation without resolution, there's no way to heal it, and so you have to cope. Right. Like coping is basically the opposite of healing. Right. So the primary mechanism for coping in the human race is fragmentation. And this happens on all kinds of different levels. For example, we can't handle a memory. And so the mind will store it in a fragmented way. It stores the visual aspect separate from the emotional aspect, separate from the sound aspect of the memory. And the same thing happens with our own consciousness in terms of traits of our own that we identify with or reject. Mm -hmm. So let's say that I have a trauma in my childhood. Let's just not use me. No, actually, let's do use me. Okay, so using myself as an example, okay. at, at eight years old, I was going on horseback rides with this mentor of mine, and he was part of this, all of us actually were part of this sort of really aggressive Western society where they practice calf roping on these goats because it's a smaller target. And when they rip back with their ropes, usually they dislocate the spine from the hips of these goats. I mean, it's like, it's typical. So the goat's like writhing around in pain. Nobody cares. It's just less money to ruin a goat than it is to ruin a calf when you're training. So this, this society, like the level of brutality, it is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like if you have a a dog on the ranch for years, when that dog can't hurt as well, you just take it out into a field and shoot it. And a lot of these farmers, they don't shoot them well enough. And so you wake up and there's like a trail of blood in the snow. So 
it is like a, I mean, it's wild, wild west out here, to be honest. So the attitude is there is no mercy for vulnerability. So when I was eight, you know, I, I had this scenario where I fell off of this horse. It was a real bad scenario. It actually fell off of an embankment. I jumped off and then watched the horse fall back on top of, of its own saddle and do like a barrel roll. And of course it gets back up and it's freaking out and it's panicked and I'm eight and I've just had this huge, you know, crash and he rides his horse right up and he's like, get up. And at this point I'm shaking. I don't want to, I'm crying. He yells again, get up and I'm not going to do it. Right. So I'm sort of frozen. I can't control this big horse. So he gets off of his horse, ties his to a tree and punches me, tells me to get up again. I try to get up. It's not good enough for him. He throws me on the floor and he stands on my arm with his cowboy boots, which actually fractured my arm. So, and, and it's a bit after that, with my arms not functioning, puts me back on the horse in a dead pour of rain, and I have to ride a mile and a half home. So, in this experience, I'm in distress. I cannot create resolve with it. Right. So, what happens is I create a split in my consciousness between the aspect of me that's vulnerable, this little eight-year-old girl who's, you know, really needs um, nurturing, and the coping aspect, which we could call a protector self, which basically identifies with any aspect within me or within the universe that can get back on that horse. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a cowgirl personality, which I started to develop. So the split within consciousness is between that vulnerable self and the cowgirl self. Now the cowgirl self, if you were sort of to differentiate that, all the character traits in me that, that go in the direction of, I don't have vulnerability now begin to amalgamate as a separate persona within my own consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, so as you watch that one develop, by the time I'm 17, I've got this aspect that's like, you can punch me as much as you want to. I will never cry. Yeah. So w this, this fragmentation is happening. I gave you sort of a severe scenario, which was my case, but this fragmentation is happening within us all the time, and it's happening relative to even minor things. And one of the issues that I've got is that we see trauma in such a limited way that we don't understand that trauma is a spectrum. Way over on this side, you've got stuff like what I went through, but every person on earth goes through trauma that causes them to fragment things as, as simple as I got weaned in a way that I couldn't resolve. I mean, most of us, that's normal, right? We normalize trauma because we're looking at certain things and we're saying, but everybody experiences that. Yeah, but that doesn't make it not traumatic. Of course. So You're right. Everybody does go through trauma, but then like for you, you created, say, solutions to they make the best of it, of what you can. Uh, a lot of people, unfortunately, they don't <laughs> still like wrap around that trauma. And then worse yet, uh, they would need that tra trauma to survive even more. Because if you know you put them in a safe home, they would, well, gravitate back to abuse or trauma. But you probably did in the past. Um, which kind of leads us to say loneliness, because if you're running that severe of a, uh, say, abuse pattern, uh, you would have to be isolated because you couldn't say, and I think that is used for uh, isolation. It's, divide that, it's that divide and conquer scenario where you well, divide and then you, it, whatever consciousness that controls you can con keep conquering you more and more. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Well, lo loneliness and abuse goes hand in hand because... If you see so the basically the definition of abuse is I'm doing something to your detriment mm -hmm. and usually to my benefit because we don't understand that we're connected. <clears throat> 
So if you're connected to somebody, right? If I'm connected to you, now your best interests register as part of my best interests. I can't harm you without perceiving that same harm being done within myself. So for abuse to occur, there has to be a disconnection. And disconnection is loneliness. It's this perception of separation. My feelings, my thoughts, you know, me and my is separate from you and your. So it, beca- it basically creates a zero-sum game. And the most painful thing that happens as far as I'm concerned, is that when, when you're raised in that type of environment, by default, you are pushed into having to adopt that same strategy towards the world. If I'm with you, for example, and you're my kid, and I start to abuse you, which meaning I'm not connected to you, I don't see you, I don't feel you, I don't hear you, and I don't have your best interests at heart, you have one option and one option only, and that's to be out for yours truly and no one else. Right. So it's like a cycle that perpetuates itself. And so a lot of people who have been abused, you see them perpetuating that same cycle in their relationships, either on the narcissistic end of the spectrum or the codependent side of the spectrum, which is actually exactly the same. Well, well, from my point of view, like say somebody abuses their child, is it because they're actually trying to awaken something in themselves or trying to like wake themselves up to heal? And then they yeah. put that abuse upon them. Well, pedo- pedophilia is the best example of this that I have. It's like the attempt to connect with a, that the child in that sexual way is the attempt to reconnect with one's own innocence and inner child self, which at a certain point they had to get away from. Got it. So, I mean, every sexual fetish is actually this way. We in, innately, even the most um, unaware person, understands that sexuality is inherently creative in nature. And so all of these fetishes are a subconscious attempt to gain some sort of emotional state that we don't feel capable of gaining any other way, so, which is what the, why the study of fetishes is like so fascinating to me because, you know, you'll see things like that. Pedophilia is absolutely an attempt to reconnect with one's own lost innocence. That's true. Even the abuse, we're starting an abuse series by the in, uh, beginning of the year. And as I tap into the consciousness of abuse, it's really amazing and fascinating to me how, say, seductive abuse can be. Um, but in your book, um, uh, in your book, you share how increased fame amplified your experience with loneliness. Uh, you took a year off in Central America mm-hmm. to dive into understanding lo- loneliness via shamanic journeying. What were some of your like pivotal experiences uh, or realizations you know, over that course of that time? Well, this entire book is actually a byproduct of that time. So every everything that I'm putting forth in this book stands for some of those, you know, realizations. I think the first thing that really blew my mind was to really see how disconnected that we were. And it's, it's you know, because I was down in Costa Rica for this, where I eventually ended up buying a retreat center. And what I was seeing was just like this incredible juxtaposition, because down there you've got these people who are so intimately connected to the natural wilderness. They are completely dependent upon it. It's a, they like to say it's a second world country, but it actually feels like a third world country <laughs> where, I mean, like if there's a storm, no, everyone's on the street. They've just lost their 10 houses, you know? And what you'd see is like is a real division within society between this these group of individuals who are so tapped in to the natural wilderness to the people around them it's a community-based type of a situation and at the same time the exact opposite you've got people who are like so disconnected from environmentalism that they're burning plastics it's like flying into the air you've got people who are chopping off the heads of animals with machetes and not really thinking anything of it and so and really bizarre crimes. So 
it's, it's almost like you're looking at, it's like a really, you know, have you ever eaten a curry that's almost too much? It was like that. And I, what really, it really brought me down to is that it's not about like a specific culture being more connected or less connected. It's like how these individuals are raised. You know, it's what I start, started to see as the variable. The variable in the people who are connected is they had people intensely connected to them. Right. And the, and the other experience, the other. But I also was able to see down there this dance of connection that happens in a place where life is so dense. Like, you know, where I grew up was, is um, the high mountain desert. It's not like down in those areas of the globe where when you're in the rainforest, when you're in the jungle, it is a bizarre dance of like life and death and passion. Of course. And I was watching just the flow and how you'll watch how one bug moves and it's in tune with the movement of every plant. And it's almost like there's this constant communication going on. And when you go from there, like I flew from there one time to New York City and I, I actually couldn't handle it. I had a breakdown, started crying after one hour, just based off of the absence. It's not just the absence. It's like if you could hear the tone of, of the, the jungle as music versus the tone in New York City, it's like a symphony versus a bunch of people playing an instrument completely unwilling to harmonize with each other. Oh, definitely. And I can see the impact it has on a person's physiology. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other thing is these three pillars, you know, I wanted to understand what makes up loneliness because, right. I, you know, I don't really have an interest. I'm sort of a person who likes to dissect stuff. And what I understood is that, Dude. you know, to understand loneliness, you've got to understand what makes it happen. Mm -hmm. Same as self-hate. I got to understand the components in order to unravel them. And so on three subsequent journeys, which were quite difficult, I was shown these three pillars. It was like, you know, separation was this one in the center and shame and fear kind of rested like two teepee poles on that one in the center. So both of them were feeding that, that center pole or what I'm calling a pillar of separation. Sure. It was a really powerful time. <laughs> You know, I went to the jungle, uh, the Amazon jungle, and I know what you're talking about. You know, that there's that frequency that just pulls you in and just holds you. If you're not strong, you know, it'll destroy you. And that's why I say like, yeah. it can kill you. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, yeah. But when I'm sensing, you know, the people in Costa Rica, like you said, they start to get so pulled into that raw nature that it starts to distort them. So oh, yeah. it would have been beneficial for them, you know, yeah. if they kept their humanness, but they get pulled into and they just, well, you know, raw nature always uh, eradicates or destroys to say, create itself. Does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so when, they, when they get sucked into that, they start to destroy themselves, hence they start to destroy animals, they abuse um, and all that. It's really quite sad how that happened. Um, so these yeah. three pillars, uh, mm -hmm. so what were they again? Separation is the central pillar and shame and fear in a physical human rest on that central pillar and keep enhancing it. So basically what we got to do to create the opposite of loneliness is to topple those three pillars. But the most important thing to understand for the sake of your mind is separation. One of the one of these super intense journeys that I did down there in the Costa Rican jungle was where you experience the, the loneliness of God for the first time or source consciousness, whatever we're calling it. And because, you know, as humans, when we're in the spiritual field, we tend to assume, you know, source or God would never feel a state of loneliness. 
True. Right? But it was that was actually the beginning of separation. Was was Source's sense of its own loneliness, mm-hmm. and that only happened when Source itself, the mind of God, conceived of the concept of I. It's like you can't. The minute you think the thought, the thought is a cancer that quite literally cracks the the unitedness. It's beyond oneness because if I say oneness, that makes it a singularity again. So we could consider oneness the ego of Source, when Source is beyond that. In fact. So it was that creation of the crack within that unitedness, the thought I, and it was the only time where there could even be a concept of other. So, so the thought of I gives birth naturally to the idea of other. And so when Source thinks I, it's the only time that there is any relationship to the idea that there might be something outside of itself. Now, of course, we know that if Source is everything in existence, there is nothing to be in relationship to. And so innately, it is the deepest suffering in Source's mind and heart. Yeah, in the jungle, I guess you you get to reference where you are because you get to see, say, a pure source uh, yes. so blatantly. You get to go, oh, I'm really disconnected, and you know, you hopefully try to find that path to reconnect to. Um, I want to talk more about the loneliness part. So, in your book, um, you use the word loneliness, but how do you differentiate that from lonely, being lonely, and from being alone? I have a hard time answering this question because it is not possible to be alone. Like, a even if I'm tech, <laughs> I know, but like, let's say that I'm not around other people. Mm-hmm. I'm still, there's, st- I can't be alone if I want to, because even there's consciousness, even in the chair that I'm sitting in. Mm-hmm. So, um, it is possible to be quote unquote alone, not around people and not feel the sensation of loneliness, but loneliness really arises from this perception of separation. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I am like, I'm never going to come at you saying, Oh, because I've had all this realization, I have no loneliness in my being. Actually, it's the exact opposite. I have more intense sensations of separation being aware than not. And this is you know, most people assume that once you get to a certain level of ascension, you're going to transcend beyond that. That's only if you consider yourself to be separate from everything in existence. If, if I have the secondary awakening, let's talk about this. The, the primary awakening that we have, the first enlightenment, is one's own enlightenment. So it's where you start to realize, oh, I am part of everything in existence. You start to see your past lives and all of that. So it's, a, it's an individual awakening. The secondary awakening happens when you have the sensation, wait a minute, if I am everything in existence and that aspect of me over there, which is the, you know, say the homeless person on the street is not in a state of awakeness, then I'm not fully awake. That's when people become the teacher. But it's not possible for you to individually be in a state of complete connection and feeling wonderful if part of you over there is also suffering. So it becomes quite complicated because you are the person who's happy because they're getting married at the same time as you are the person who's dying in the street convinced that they're not connected to anyone or anything so it has enhanced my sensation of loneliness if anything but but what it what it didn't do is put me in a space of powerlessness to it right that's so true i i did uh we went to um uh skid row in la uh, and, you know, I did a little clip on why there's homelessness and exactly what you're talking about. It's a representation of, say, our darkness that still exists within us. That's just a, a physical representation of who we are that we try to hide from. You know, we have luxury items. We get the best whatever cigars or I don't know why I'm thinking of cigars. But, anyway, <laughs> um, you know, all those things to hide from the shame of, of something like that still existing. So oh, yeah. best ways to clean yourself up. 
one of the best ways, I guess, to clean society up is to clean yourself up. Oh, 100%. This is exactly what I'm putting forth, actually, because I'm not only putting forth the concept of loneliness in terms of wanting people to individually solve it. This is a collective societal problem. Oh. And these people that we put, anybody that we go other to, you know, back in the days when it was, you know, Jesus, it's the lepers. Today, it's like our criminals. Anything that we don't want to look at in ourselves, we shove away and we say those people. But we take the same attitude towards them that we did within ourselves. It's the separate from it and then punish it, hoping that by doing so, it's going to change in some way, but actually we're just enhancing the whole damn problem. So to solve that, we have got to be willing to own those parts of ourselves. And that's the sort of radical practice that I'm proposing for the, um, the resolving of shame. So good. So true. Um, do you feel loneliness plays a role in preventing one's success in life or reaching their fullest potential? Yeah. Yeah, because so when we look about at life success, what genuine life success is, is how good do I feel doing it? So like if a person feels good having a million dollars and fine, if they feel good having five dollars, then it's fine. It's success either way. But when you look at what happiness is, it's about what kind of quality of life you have. So then we have the question, what is life? If you look at life, it's nothing but relationships. So when I say I have a crappy life right now, all I'm actually talking about is my relationships. I have a relationship to the job. I have a relationship to this person in my life. I have a relationship to the house that I'm living in. What is my relationship to that aspect in my life? That's my quality of life. So our, our sensation of separation makes for the most unhappy life there is. And it is what ultimately is leading to all the addictions that you're seeing. It's ultimately what's leading to crime, including war. Mm -hmm. And it's what causes suicide. True. I totally agree with you because there's a lot of people who still commit suicide. So... You know, although they might be covering it up by if I have this or I have that, then I'll be happy. But then they actually start to magnify, say, the loneliness that they're feeling, because what they're trying to do is really find their internal self and nothing outside of them can, say, make up for that. Right? So once you find yourself, and I call this significant success, uh, once you find yourself, then you get really, really connected. And then whatever that you're having is a reflection of how connected you are. So getting back to that, loneliness, success, relationships, um, do you agree with the ideology that we do not need anyone outside of ourselves to feel complete and loved? No, actually, I set myself apart from most people in the spiritual field this way and that I feel like the attachment that we have to this is pretty sad because what I'm watching is, is that the majority of people who are sitting in front of me wanting me or another spiritual teacher to reinforce this belief if you look at their childhood, they, it's quite simple. They just haven't had any of their emotional needs met. So they, and there's no way to get them met because you're in an environment which is basically like prison as a child. If your parents don't introduce you to somebody or to a, you know a, another society, you're stuck there. So they turn to God. They basically turn to something else to attempt you know this process. And I, I have a real issue with the fact that we use spirituality so often to transcend our humanity instead of to integrate our humanity. And so th this obsession that, I'm, that people are having towards you can do it all for yourself and you don't need anyone outside you to make you feel complete is actually a denial of our basic biology, which I don't feel like is healthy to deny any more than it's healthy to deny one's sexuality. We have emotional needs that need to be met by other beings. We are a group species in the same way that a deer is. So it's just as ridiculous for us to be like, no, I can do things completely by myself and I don't need to be in connection any more than it is to walk up to a dog or deer and say, you know what, sweetheart, you're really dependent on your herd. It's pretty dysfunctional. True. So, but like, so this is where I get stuck because 
a lot of people are trying to use the outside world to escape themselves, which is why I feel like putting the focus back on, you know, one's own internal process is super, super healing. Mm-hmm. But, but saying things like I have to love myself in order for anyone else to love me. Like you can't say you believe in oneness and believe in that. Cause there actually is no difference. There is no difference between if I love you and I love myself, it's the same thing. So I feel like sometimes the, the differentiating between the outside and inside actually enhances the sense of fragmentation and loneliness. True. And I think since people can't say really connect with people, like, you know, one person can't connect with another person, they have issues. What do they do? They go into spirituality or religion, and then they go into escape into God. Then that connection with God is distorted because they can't find themselves. Oh, exactly. And then, like, God is usually that person you have the issue with. <laughs> exactly. Like, why did God forsake me? Why didn't God? Yeah, exactly. So uh, why is human connection so important that many people would rather stay uh, in a poor relationship? Then be alone. And this goes to, for, for you and maybe others, you know, when you get abused, uh, you know, you go back to your abuser, um, not for that reason, but for other reasons. But that's intriguing for me as well. A sense of closeness and connection is the primary human need. It is a need that is more important than food and water. So most biologists would put forward the idea that a physical human food and not water is going to be more important than human connection. It actually isn't. And you can tell that when people break up. When they get when they lose relationships or when they go into grieving, quite often they go into periods where they're denying themselves of food and water, even to the point of starvation. So if that was the case, if it was the case that food and water and these more physical needs were more important than connection, you actually would not see that behavior when in association with grief. So the number one most important thing for us is that sense of connection. And this goes to a deep um, cerebral and a very deep just nervous system dynamic that's going on, which is that for thousands of years, our social species literally only survive based on the closeness mm-hmm. of the group. And we, are, we also have to understand that we're relationally dependent severely. Human beings are born three months premature. And, and even with that at three months, we are absolutely embarrassing in terms of our own, our own self-reliance. Of course. But even, even in other herd species, where it's still, you're still dependent on the, this, um, this sort of coherence of a social group, like a horse. They're born, within hours they're standing, they can graze on their own. We can't do that. We are so relationally dependent that our entire nervous system is clicked into the concept that survival is closeness to the group or whoever, whatever person that we're close to. And if our survival is dependent upon them, this is what abusers do, our survival is totally dependent on them, then the most unsafe thing you can possibly do is to go away. And there's a, I actually do this demonstration about perpetrator bonding, which is super interesting, which is that if, if I perceive that somebody is controlling my safety, right, and they're in charge of whether I'm safe or unsafe, and I, and I can't escape, then what will happen is I will try to endear myself to that person in every way, shape, and form. I actually play the most ultimate form of codependent. I try to mirror and mimic them so that they don't recognize the difference between me and them. And what's actually happening at an esoteric level is I'm taking an aspect of my consciousness. I'm actually putting it inside their heart. So there's a part of, of every person who's been abused that's actually stuck inside their perpetrator's heart. And by doing that, it's an interesting thing because it's another, it's another way of actually being so attuned to them that you can now stay safe. If I have a part of myself that's in their heart, my consciousness is able to register every single shift that happens within this person. 
so that I can adjust according to their mood. And so most empaths, in fact, are born of this process. See that? Yeah. I, I love that because, you know, empaths are always the people who are like, you know, I just, I just, I was always like this. I'm like, well, yeah, you were always like that because you had a dangerous adult. <laughs> That's what leads to it. It's a hypervigilant state that leads to that, that hyper attunement that empaths get. Mm -hmm. So talking about impasse, because they always need somebody to identify who they are, right? That's what yes. impact. Um, would choosing isolation be better than interacting with those who do not contribute to our highest good? No. But here's the thing. like, If somebody doesn't contribute to our highest good, we're already disconnected. So if we choose to isolate ourselves on a physical level, all that we're doing is making our external reality match the internal or emotional dimension of our reality. But what I want is for people to stop choosing, you know, I don't want to want people to choose isolation or choose connection with people who are dysfunctional or choose to be either with themselves or with other people. You can do all of these at the same time. One of the most beautiful things to learn to do is to be in connection while maintaining yourself. And if I was to sum up the dysfunction, the relationship dysfunction of all people on the planet today, it boils down to one sentence. I can't have myself and have you at the same time. So I, I want to, that's what I want to shred. And I feel like it's more, it's 10 times more valuable, especially nowadays, than to isolate someone in a cave so they can find themselves. Mm -hmm. To bring somebody into connection and, and at the same time kind of push them into having to maintain a sense of self while they're doing that. So if I'm working with an empath, I'm not going to isolate them. I'll bring them into connection and then make them aware of how they're losing themselves. Make them aware of when they go outside to try to sort of track what I'm doing to gauge whatever their answer is going to be. I put them back in touch with whether they're attuning to me or attuning to their, you know, their own personal truth. And that tends to be the most healing thing. Right. With my work as well, you know, people like say an impact, they start to decipher what's them and what's the other people because they mirror other people so well. Yeah. And, you know, they go through that process and they go, well, I feel isolated. It's not that they feel really isolated anymore, although they might use that terminology. It's actually that for the first time, they're actually identifying how lonely they've been without themselves. Yes. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, for those people listening, it's really, you have to be really mindful as you go through the process. Um, you know, as you pull away, you get to reference how, say, maybe disconnected you are from humanity. And you'll even feel um, disconnected even if you're in a group of people. Yeah. But then that's how you transform because you know now that you're that far disconnected and that oh, yeah. you come into yourself. So it's not about loneliness or isolating yourself. Yeah. Although Jesus and Buddha and all those people, they did go through, uh, you know, and isolate themselves. I mean, I kind of went through that as well. But um, those are for the higher realms, I think. You, I think you went through that as well, isolation, to really understand who you are. Not intentionally, no. No, not intentionally. I didn't do it intentionally. Either. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, being that there are so many unaware individuals, uh, how can someone who is trying to become aware not feel lonely and we kind of talked about it um, just a minute ago but do you have any other like key points well as far as i'm concerned the most important thing is to decide upon connection and that's something that we ourselves have to begin practicing instead of looking for it to be practiced i mean it's great to gravitate into the direction of 
of people who are already on this path with us. But to, some, to a certain degree, we're going to have to be the teachers of that which we want to transform within the world. So the primary commitment that I see that we can make in order to get out of the state of loneliness is to commit to intimacy with another person who's sitting in front of me. And this is a practice that somebody like me, I, I care and I'm so committed to connection. I will do this with everyone. I don't care what their persuasion is. I don't care what they politically believe. I don't care whether it's a, a grocery store teller. Sure. that I'm sitting across from for two and a half seconds in the grocery store. The practice that I have is I'm going to see into them. I'm going to feel into them. I'm going to listen to them so as to try to understand them. Mm-hmm. And it's an even deeper practice when you realize that that's a part of yourself. If I don't see them and if I don't understand them and if I don't completely listen to them, then I don't know myself. So it's almost like it's a different mindset that you're walking around the world in. It's no longer, well, I want those grapes on the store shelf and I'm frustrated that the person wants them too. And that's that other person. It's this, it's almost like you're taking your energy and you're reaching into and pulling at everybody that you interact with instead of pushing them away. And it has transformed my life to such a degree that it's like, I wish I could go back to my 18 year old self who felt so disconnected and say, just start doing this. Mm. Something as simple as, okay, so I'm, I'm standing at the, the, in the grocery store and there's a teller. I never go out to the self-checkout because of this. Mm-hmm. I'm standing there and I'm looking at the person. And the, all I'm, if all I'm doing is just trying to feel where they are emotionally, then it's still a reach out and a pull. And I still feel less lonely the second that I do that. Of course, because you associate with something, no matter what it is, because we're all yeah. human, right? At that deeper yeah. level. So you, and in I, order and to like, understand others, you have to understand yourself, I guess. Oh, totally. And what blows my mind is how it, I don't even have to speak for it to transform the way that a person interacts with me. Of course. Like, I can't tell you how many times I haven't even said anything and I'll do that with a teller who's been just doing this for every other person that's walked through the line. And it's like, they feel it and they look up and they'll ask me a question like, how's the day going? Yeah. And I'm, I'm never going to answer like, oh, it's good. Cause that's actually a push away. I'll actually tell them, you know, today's been kind of a so-so day. How about you? And it's like, they're actually, what I have noticed in society since doing this is this unanimous starvation. People are wanting it so bad, but they don't initiate it because it's terrifying. Well, they become so rote, you know, yeah. try to hide away, especially with social media, which is another subject that we won't get into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, how do relationships look in your life and how does it look uh, interacting inside the community, you know, you surround yourself with? Yeah, well, God, I don't, I never know how to answer those kind of questions because my community is made up of people and people have shadow aspects. And so there's lots and lots of conflict and lots and lots of harmony, depending on what's going on during the day. But what I can guarantee you is in my community, there is no suppression. And that's the relief of being here. Everybody is free and can completely be themselves in any moment, meaning they can, they can feel how they feel. They can think how they think, and they can bring those things into the center of their relationship every other person in the community. So, you know, if you go into the average home, there's so much suppression that's happening that it's like, you know, there's all this tension from something that might've happened last week, but nobody's talking about it. There is none of that tension in my house, none. But, it, but because there's none of that tension, it seems more sort of like this to people who just barely come in because it'll be like, you know, somebody, somebody will say, you know, I'm feeling like this today. This is something that I don't like. And then it's, it's like a 20 minute conversation between everybody to get back on the same page. And then it's this like incredible harmony mm-hmm. for like a, you know, an hour or two hours where you would never feel that in another community. So it's a mix of every, 
everything, but it's very, very intense. I can tell you that. <laughs> you know? That reminds me of you, like being in the jungle. There's a harmony, although it might feel like chaos if you just like walked into that jungle. But there's that yes. harmony. So it's like guided chaos, I guess you could say. Uh, and that's the beautiful thing. Everybody can be themselves. They don't have to be, you know, stuck in this little narrow path that, okay, for everybody to harmonize, we just need to be stuck in this little narrow path. What you're talking about is everybody can be themselves and still integrate well right oh yeah oh yeah and then the relationships change what's really interesting is let's say that i that there's somebody that's been in the community for five years to 15 years what will happen is this kind of equilibrium actually where you you write out this rockiness and it's up and down and you're figuring out how to adjust to each other and then it's this incredible calm where it's very rare for there ever to be any kind of a conflict because it's like you're still on the same page but then you'll have a new person come into the community and they're used to operating not in a space of authenticity and so it's like every other community member spends a time trying to pull them in and then they start to get their legs for the first time in terms of asserting their needs for the first time terrified they're going to lose relationships and eventually they move into this calm as well so it's interesting how the whole dynamic changes the second that a new you know, person is introduced and how beautiful it gets after that smoothing out process happens. Beautiful. You know, what are good options to boost the mood when you're feeling lonely? <laughs> oh no. Well, when I'm feeling lonely, I go seek people. I mean, it sounds like I'm saying something completely freaking obvious, but for most people, they don't actually do that. If they watch themselves, when they feel lonely, they actually sink deeper into loneliness because of the thoughts that are telling them things that cause them to isolate. So, the, you know, if you can't just go put yourself around other people, I feel like the best way to go about that is to start to give unconditional presence to those thoughts or to whatever aspect of you is the most lonely. That's the practice I give to people that are real super isolated. Um, if, if you start to see yourself as this multiplicity, so I start to see myself in terms of I'm an amalgamation of parts, not just one thing called teal, then when I'm feeling lonely, what I can do is I can sit in a chair and I can actually allow my body to get taken over only by the part of myself that feels the most alone. And then I can, I, I like to use left hand writing exercises because your logical conscious mind that may have your spiritual attachments mm-hmm. isn't part of that root of thinking. And I'll just write down whatever that aspect would write in a journal. And then, you know, it's almost like I'm using another portion of my consciousness to answer to all of those issues, not in an invalidating way, but in an inclusive way. And just by giving that unconditional presence and focused attention, something that you don't even need another person for, that decreases that sensation of loneliness. It's awesome. Um, I kind of see it the same way, uh, you know, just from more of a scientific or mechanical point of view, you know, journaling and all that, it brings you into the present moment. You know, if you're in the present moment, you can never be lonely, no matter if you're out in the desert and you haven't seen. If you're so present, you're so aware, you know, that consciousness, kind of like the jungle, but even at a grander level, comes into you, um, you know, and, and there's no loneliness. It's just you, you feel one with everything. So how can you feel lonely? Um, but how can we how can we open? I, I, I also agree with you. I love I love I, I love the idea of of. Um being in the present moment but in my personal experience you can be in the present moment and be alone because it because connection is an actual need so the same way that you could be in the present moment and actually be you know starving to death or, or be so thirsty you can't stand it of course I, I really am wanting to like direct people towards getting their emotional needs met and even realizing what they are what has blown my mind is that so many people can't even say it you know they, they can't look at me in the face and say i need under to be understood of course 
Yeah, that's just that step. Once you get that, then you gravitate towards really. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, which is exactly like that's sort of why you know the earlier question you asked me is like I'm almost laughing at it because it's like, what do you do if you're lonely, Teal? Well, I go find Graciela. Graciela is the you know the person in in my community who is always unconditionally present. So I'll be like, I'll like open her door, Gracie, and then go lay on her bed. So it's like, it's not this painful process. So when we're, we're super alone, like when I first started out, I can tell you it was a super painful process where I had that need, but I literally couldn't, I didn't feel free to get it met. I didn't even know how. Now it's like, it's obvious. If I'm hungry, I go get food. You know, if I want connection, I just go get connection. But I mean, saying that to somebody who's like, well, that's more complicated than you're making it. I get that. Yeah. So do you think there's an ultimate cure for loneliness? Yeah, I do think there's an ultimate cure for loneliness, actually, and it's for us to see ourselves as a fractal of source consciousness. So, so originally what I'm saying is that I don't like for people to, to differentiate between what's external and what's internal because it's actually all the same thing. However, if you understand that based on that principle, you are a fractal of source consciousness, meaning basically a miniaturized exact carbon copy of it, of then if I feel separated from something outside, it means I'm separated from that very same thing inside. And so what I'm proposing after saying all this stuff about we need each other, what I'm proposing is that the solution to loneliness is that we find those aspects that we're separated from internally and create connection and fusion with those aspects. And when we do that, the external world will mirror it exactly. Exactly. I mean, one in one, yeah. Exactly, that's what I said. You know, talking about loneliness, a lot of people want intimacy. So how can we really open and, and trust in intimacy with others, you know, when doing so previously? You know, brought us heartbreak, abuse, you know, pain. Well, the first thing is you can stop expecting yourself to trust. I feel like one of the most abusive things we can do for ourselves, especially if we've been hurt in childhood, is to expect ourselves to feel trust towards something. It's almost like expecting yourself not to feel a certain way. That's ridiculous. I mean, it, I, it would actually be abusive if a person had been in a shark attack and I'm telling them, get back in the water and trust you won't be attacked by a shark. Hell no. What I'm saying is we need to, we need to see that we are in such a state of torment alone. Mm -hmm. that the risk might be worth it. And when that's the case, what we can do is actually hold our fear, not bulldoze our fear, not like push through the fear, which is actually a part of ourselves. So we're actually doing damage doing that. We're creating more of a separation. So not bulldozing our fear, but actually sort of holding it like a scared child and moving forward with it. And what we do is we bring the fear into the center of the relationship. I mean, I really need people to get this. Anything that's true to you, you can bring it to the center of the relationship. So I would, if I'm in that position, say I'm absolutely terrified. Mm -hmm. And that's what the other person gets to be in a relationship with us as well as my fear. And if we're going to start to rehabilitate people, and if we're going to be in relationship with somebody who's been abused, I'm sorry, whether you like it or not, you're in a relationship with that aspect of fear. Right. So you start to study it. I don't want to say embrace it, but you actually start to study the patterns. Uh, and I think that you can overcome, say, that abuse patterns and learn from it and then use it as stepping stones to go higher and higher. Yes, another thing that I noticed that's really important is that most people who have been abused and they've got that distrust pattern, even when they're in safe relationships, they're not resourcing it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like I, my way of protecting myself from loss or from being disappointed and hurt again is to just anticipate it's always going to happen. But if we're in that state, we're never actually resourcing the sensation of connection. And it's really hard. I mean, it's actually like one of the hardest practices that I have for people. But if I put them in the let's say I've got somebody who's real got a real distrust issue in relationships. So I'll put them in the room with somebody and then I'll, I'll keep reminding them, okay, so what does it feel like in your body to know that this person's not going to hurt you right now? Right. And, and that's almost more intolerable than being in that state of distrust for them, even though the state of distrust is also painful. 
but it's that resourcing of, oh, wait, now, now life can be different. The sort of, you know, resourcing, now I'm not getting hit right now, or I'm, I'm not having to play a scary chess game right now, or somebody else is committed to repair too, not just me, that really transforms a person's reality. So much of that happens somatically in the body, not mentally. And so, you know, all of this basically that we're doing is, is talk so that the mind can get on board. But ultimately this this move out of a space of abuse and isolation is all a somatic feeling. It's it is, what does it feel like in your body, the difference between that state and this new state. And so that's something that can't be taught. It's something that has to be experienced. You know? So once you learn that, mm-hmm. I think, well, Oh my God. Once you learn that it drastically changes your life. I, because, because this is the thing. Now you can tell the difference when you walk in the room with someone, let's say you feel that feeling of what it feels like to have somebody really hold you. Because like a genuine connection is a two-way hold, right? Once you feel that sensation of what it's like for someone to like genuinely hold you, you always know the opposite now. True. It's kind of like you can't take somebody into from Nairobi into a Western grocery store and have them not get what that feels like anymore. So now they understand the starvation. Mm-hmm. And this is where, where as, a, as a, somebody who's a survivor of abuse, this is where the real beauty starts. Because before that, you don't have any context to reference for it. It's sort of like I'm talking to somebody about some foreign experience on another planet. Now when they've had that experience, they go back to somebody and they can tell in 30 seconds whether that's an abusive person or not. And that's when those life changes start to change, you know, life choices. They start to go... I'm choosing not to be in connection with this person at this time. And I am gravitating in the direction of somebody who's actually there for me. So that goes, that goes to the next question that, well, you can turn that loneliness or isolation that can actually play a role in personally say strengthening us on our path to awakening to our full potential. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hugely. Well, I mean, anything you struggle with ultimately is your greatest source of learning. And once you learn that, you're stepping into the opposite space. So it is the grounds for expansion. Mm-hmm. You know, I, at the risk of sounding like every other, you know, self-help person in the universe that's like, oh, it's awesome, you know, because it's not awesome when you're trying to overcome abuse. But it is absolutely true that those challenges that you face, they are the grounds for you stepping into the opposite state. So it's not like when you want to understand love to its utmost degree that you'll come down into a loving experience first. You won't. You're going to come into the exact opposite because we can only know white from the platform of black and vice versa. So most of us, when we're looking to master something, we will step into the exact opposite vibration first. <laughs> well, exactly. You have to create that point of reference. And, you know, and I say that over and over again, with the people that I work with, you know, it's like, you have to clear out all the garbage, you know, and if you want love, well, you have to clear out all the garbage that's not providing you yes. love. Exactly. Oh, I'm so glad you have that persuasion because this is like, this is one of my biggest fights in the spiritual field. It's like, I, I don't even get hired to give talks anymore with groups because I'm so subversive this way because what we want when we enter the spiritual field, right? We want to feel better. It's basically one that we want to escape from pain. But what do we know? When you get deeper into the spiritual practice and deeper on the path of awareness, it's like, sorry, buddy, you're going in the exact opposite direction because the only way out is in, you know? So <laughs> People don't understand that, especially, I hate to say it, spiritual or religious people. It's like, Mom, I came to your seminar and I'm, I'm supposed to feel good and euphoric. It's like, yeah, you can for a little bit, but do you want to sustain that? Do you want to maintain Exactly. It? Not just in yes. this lifetime, but, you know, your lineage and pre, you know, future lifetime. Well, you got to go through this crap of, or the work of cleaning all that garbage out. Oh, yeah, exactly. New series, by the way. And 
you know, and I think you're on track as well, cleaning out the garbage so you can really shine. Oh, that's my focus. And what's funny is I feel like I have more hope in, in people than those who sell what I'm calling spiritual Novocaine. The people who are standing on a stage saying everything is wonderful. Like, and so, you know, everybody gets an injection per second and it lasts like a day before they have to come back again. It's a good way of making money for the self-help business. But like, you know, I literally feel like what we're expected to do in this business is to be spiritual drug dealers. And it absolutely drives me crazy because it is not healing. And you know, I, it really, I really wish that we felt like it was possible to go towards our darkness while holding somebody's hand, you know, to a deep degree, because that's what we ultimately need. Mm-hmm. We, we need that connection through all this stuff. And the reason I feel like I'm being actually more loving than people who are, who are you know, these Novocaine dealers in the spiritual field is that, you know, I'm ultimately saying that your natural state is that state of, you know, whatever you're identifying as positive, your natural state is empowerment. Your natural state is awakened. All you got to do is to find those things that are acting like a beaver dam to your natural state. Right, I call them filters. Yeah, you're a lot, yeah, yeah. you know, the philosophy, you know, identical to what I, what I say is like, you know, you're naturally brilliant. All you have to do is identify all the garbage that you're not, or I call them filters, remove that. But people don't want to remove their filters for some strange reason. You know, they want to hold on to their filters and then feel good. You can't do that. Yep. It doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work long. Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what kind of comes to that next question, we constantly think of various things that create the perception of separation. Uh, and that's the filters that we talk about, right? Because that's your true being. If you have those filters, you're separated. Um, how then can oneness be achieved? How can oneness be achieved? Yeah. Well, oneness can be achieved by create by basically taking care of any of the perceptions of separation that you have. It's almost like if you if you look at any perception of separation as one of these um, roadblocks in the way by pulling that out, the water is able to flow completely. Oneness, if you will, is our natural state. Of course. So that means, I mean, some of these, these um, let's call them beaver dam things or filters as you're calling them, some of them, they happen upon even just the idea of becoming human that happens before birth. So when I'm opting into a physical human experience, I'm opting into the perception of isolation. So much of this is it's about the illusion that we opt into upon coming into this time-space reality. But we also have to see, though, and this is where, where people really fail. There's a final trap in spirituality. We come in, we become aware that so much of our perception of separation is complete illusion. And actually, we reject all of those aspects that are in the illusion mm-hmm. when we go towards the truth. So, you know, it was, was one of the, actually one of the journeys that I went on was this very weird um, interesting journey where I saw that illusion has to be taken as part of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So even that is something that I feel like, you know, the spiritual people need to go in the direction of. So because I find so many, so many spiritual teachers and spiritual practitioners, they start to see their body as an illusion. Yes. And even, even in the seeing of the body as an illusion, it's like a rejection of that aspect. And so we're, we're actually kicking away the part of ourselves that is physical in favor of the aspects of ourselves that is non-physical and that is furthering separation as well yes so. yeah exactly and through the work again i think both of us through the same thing i think we start to see or identify that we are everything so you're not separating uh, i think most people on a spiritual journey are trying to find themselves they move away from darkness into brilliance 
But for me, it's like you have to be dead center and not get pulled into either side because both sides will destroy you. So you exactly. And will be balanced as you go through that, you know, higher and higher frequencies, which get heavier and heavier. Oh, exactly. Yes. I'm, I'm put, actually, I called this and consciousness, which I'm putting forth as the new alternative to the middle path. What is it? And con and consciousness. Because when you when you say balance to the average human, mm -hmm. what a person instantly goes to is a, a creating a state of of harmony through diminishment. And actually that's that's what I'm saying can't happen. If you take the totality of awareness of dark and the totality of the awareness of light, there will naturally become a peace, a harmony, or an or a, an equilibrium state. Yes. And so so and consciousness is sort of like expanding far beyond, oh, I got to become more this and a little less this. It's not about that. If I become more this and more that, there's a natural kind of a, a homeostasis. Yeah, which sense. is very different than, well, most of religion or most of spirituality or most of even success patterns, right? You Again, you try to get away from being poor into being wealthy. Yeah. And then you're poor, although you've got a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And like, this is exactly my issue. Like we, we try, we polarize. And I, this is why I can't deal with it when people sit in front of me and they're like, I mean, I have to deal with it. But when they, when they come and they sit in front of me and they say things like, you know, I'm a, I'm a light worker. I'm like, uh oh, you know, doesn't that scare you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it scares me too, hon. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, yeah. We won't talk. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> Um, is there a state in human evolution where we may no longer feel lonely, uh, despite the presence or lack there of, of, of other humans? To me, I, go ahead. I see, I see it as a contradiction in terms. Cause like, yeah, I feel like we're progressing towards a place where we won't be lonely, but by definition, if we move into a vibrational space where we're not lonely, the conversation about whether there will be people there or not is null and void because obviously there will be. Mm -hmm. Well, I so. Okay, go for it. Continue. Uh, well, I was just thinking it, you know, as you ascend, that that's not even a question anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like, <laughs> you know, as you ascend, you, you are everything that is possible, you know, whether you're, you know, a, a rapist or, you know, an abuser or whatever it is, as well as, you know, that, that saint that can help people. But then, you know, as you're awakened, you choose not to be the rapist or abuser. You have the potentiality yes. of everything around you, but you choose to stay, say, dead center and be none of those, which allows you to be all of them. All of them. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, you're trans. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm teaching. You're transcending. Um, you're, tra you're transcending from a space of determinism into free will. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then you get to the point that you go beyond say the material world of duality and then you just are and nothing yes. can say really touch you uh, nothing can destroy you uh and you benefit from all aspects although you're always doing things that are a benefit of you not only you but anybody else oh yeah and they're not even resisting being destroyed either because like most people think about most people go for the idea of getting to a space where they're no longer can be destroyed from a space of resistance the idea of being destroyed but it would be like you know at that state it's not even like exactly can't be destroyed if you yeah. with everything what are they going to destroy you into because you are everything that there is so there's no destruction so true <laughs>
Um, does does um, one second. Um, I lost my place. Uh, does one's suffering from loneliness have any correlation with one's spiritual achievement? Uh, for example, those who are less evolved seem to suffer more from loneliness, and those who are highly evolved suffer less. We kind of talked about that, but. I have actually, I actually perceive that people who have a higher state of awareness are even more lonely because they are, they're aware. It's almost like we were talking about in terms of the awareness. The people who are, who are less evolved tend to be less aware of their loneliness. They just have all these coping mechanisms to try to, to accommodate for it. And I feel like the more high that your awareness gets, the more aware you are of this separation. And usually you go into a phase of deep loneliness before you start to take personal action to resolve that loneliness, even you know, internally and externally in the world. And so then you move into the space where you get both. It's almost like you're embracing the duality of like there's extreme separation, but I also have genuine connection now. So, yeah. Beautiful. So as we wrap up, Teal, um, any last words? And then, uh, you know, want to talk about your book, obviously, The, the Anatomy of Loneliness. Uh, available on Amazon. My last words for, for this particular audience would be that it's time for us to see loneliness as not just an individual issue because that's what loneliness does. The reason it's such a poison is that it convinces you that you're the only one that's in it, obviously, by virtue of the definition of isolation. That's what it would do. I want us to start to wake up to seeing that this is an epidemic issue in this in the world today. And not only that, it's what's creating all of the stuff that we, we associate with human suffering. So it is this loneliness that is creating, you know, the crime that we're seeing on the planet. It's this loneliness that causes people to walk into a school and shoot their classmates. It's this loneliness that creates, you know, the separation which makes one party of people declare war on another party of people. It's this isolation and loneliness, in fact, that's fueling the political debates that you're seeing in the world. So if we really look at everything that's happening, this is at the root of it. And that can get super overwhelming because it feels like you can't, really do anything about this world that's so much bigger than you, but if you identify that you yourself is a fractal, right. and so everything that's out there is actually in here, now you do have the empowerment to, to end that isolation. You just find that aspect within yourself. So you know, I'm, I'm, I can feel that the people who are watching your stuff are, are have a high enough consciousness that what I would put forth is the most, most powerful practice that you can do in the world today is find whatever you resist yourself in the external world. So for somebody who's, you know, of a left-wing persuasion, it might be right-wing fundamentalist Christians. Mm -hmm. Find whatever it is that bothers you on the outside and then find that part inside you that is that way and, and address that aspect. But with, with understanding and validation, you have to see that that aspect is the way it is for a very valid reason. You've got to seek to understand it and develop genuine intimacy with that part of yourself. And when that happens, you can start to see um, cracks in the, in the way that that aspect is thinking so as to expand its awareness so that not only are you more connected to it, but it is no longer you know, in that state of pushing you away. And by virtue of doing that, you can end the isolation that we're seeing in the world today. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's talk about your book, if you want to talk about it, or I can read it real quickly if you want. Uh, I guess everyone that pre-orders will also receive the Connection Process audiobook for free. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. The Connection Process presents Three powerful uh, esoteric processes that restore you from a state of separation to a state of connection with yourself and others. Quite powerful. Uh, I really like your work. Uh, very impressed with your work. I, I don't know if you know much about me or what I do. We can talk about that uh, after the interview. And Well, we can talk about it at the Mind Body Spirit Festival that uh, I'll be attending oh, good. in Birmingham 
what, in a couple of weeks, I think? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Time travels so fast. Uh, it's going to be really you know, fascinating to me because I, well, I can see a lot of things in you. We can talk about that later. But, uh, you know, between what your book, your work that you do, and then, you know, our abuse series that we're doing, because we, cause what we do is what we go deep, deep inside, figure out all that stuff really fast, and you bring in, the, say, the top level. So we create that foundation, you bring that top level, say, performance, and you can, you know, people can transform any form of abuse just like you have, or, yeah. uh, well, you've gone to extreme. So if you can do it, I'm sure oh, yeah. people who are, say, less, can do it as well. So. Oh, that's exactly why I did this. Yeah, and for anybody who wants to pre-order that that the book of the Isol or the Anatomy of Loneliness today, um, the only thing you got to do to get that that download instantaneously of the book is to send your proof of purchase to gifts at tealswan.com. So gifts at tealswan.com. Yeah. Perfect. 